<laughs> Do women burp? Yes, I burped this entire podcast. I spend this whole podcast silently burping. I, I think I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I try to get all my burps out before we roll. Are we rolling? You're listening to Live from the News Dungeon, a nondoc.com podcast. Hello and welcome to Live from the News Dungeon, a nondoc.com podcast. This is our fourth episode. It is 1.21 p.m. on Thursday, January 21st, which is not when you're listening to this, so it's not really live, but uh, pretend like you're live here with us. I'm with our normal crew, Andrea Denhood. Hello. And Angela Jones. Sup. And Bryce Holland is our audio engineer, but we have for the first time, so you play the drop. Uh, we have for the first time a guest for an episode, and we have none other. We're knocking it out of the park big time. House Majority Floor Leader John Eccles. Wow! Yeah, happy to be on. Gonna be fun. <laughs> yeah, you're the first. You're the first. You, we got lemon bars in your honor <laughs> here from someplace else, um, which is like the name of a bakery. If you don't know that, if you're listening. Um, and yeah, we're going to try to be quick here. Just a, a, a reminder: if you like what you're hearing or you're going through this now, make sure you're subscribed. Share this with a friend. Uh, review us. Rate us. Five Even stars. Even if you're five just ambivalent only. about it, just interact in some way. Yeah. Be very Give grateful. us some mean yeah. tweets if, to read. Or <laughs> if you know us at all, you should interact in some way. Mm. If you like any five seconds, give us five stars. I, th yeah. I think we're on we're on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Spotify. I think we need to try to get on Pandora. Somebody was telling me they listened to podcasts on Pandora. I didn't know that. I have no idea. Thing, so. We don't know things. Um, but this week, our episode is a preview of the Oklahoma legislature, the uh, place where I spend a lot of my time, too much of my time. It's bad for my health. And that's where I met uh, Representative John Eccles. I think we we met we met on like a terrible day. Right. It was the first it was it was the hearing about the House members who uh, were being reprimanded. Absolutely, for, yeah. For bad, and you came up and you're like, you were like, uh, hey, I'm a big fan of non-doc. And yep. I was like, oh, that's great. We won't, we'd only been up for a couple months. And then you like gave me the real scoop. <laughs> yeah, I did. What I were did. they being reprimanded for? Uh, heinous behavior, you know, <laughs> but, sexual but, harassment. Yeah, you know? sexual harassment in the workplace. My first vote as floor leader was to expel a member. That was great. Yeah. Of my own caucus. <laughs> So good. the good news is it was all uh, uphill. And then there. the other guy was almost even worse because he was like harassing pages. Oh, yeah, it was way worse. It, it was a really, you know, it, you get elected floor leader. The first thing you do is do all that. And then you're wondering if you can give it back. Great. OK, <laughs> well, we're we're here to talk about horrible things today. Um, Angela's going to uh, uh, she's going to be on like our public, uh, you know, ask questions on behalf of the public. I'm y'all. So <laughs> if you're confused, I am too. So I will try to ask the questions that confuse me the most. Perfect. Uh, Andrea read like all of our articles for the past four years about uh, the legislature. So I read she... a, I read a summary of all the articles of the past four years of the legislature. So I am um, I'm also pretty ignorant about this stuff, but very curious and yeah, excited excellent. to learn. Excellent. So uh, I have our our little historical nugget. For the week, um, I got it from Trait Thompson with the Oklahoma Historical Society. Andrea just did a Q&A with him. John, you know Trait from... Very well. Uh, his time refurbishing the Capitol, um, making him do things in different orders than he wanted to do, right? Uh, 
You can't you can't laugh at that. Okay. Uh, the, <laughs> I think Trey did a wonderful job. You're, there not, we, you're not getting me in this. There we go. <laughs> so he sent me one of. Uh, I mean, I guess it's a great story until you look at the political climate right now. But we were talking about bad things earlier. So he sent me a story from May 1947. Do you have any idea what this story I, the story would be? Shooting in the Capitol. The shooting in the Capitol. I know exactly what story this is. Uh, yeah, the, he, these are his notes from an Oklahoman article, uh, May 8th, 1947. State senator. Tom Anglin shot as pistol is whipped out in Senate representative held in Oklahoma in uh, jail. Uh, Gunplay at the state Senate Wednesday sent Tom Anglin, veteran state senator, to the hospital with a wound in his hip and Jimmy Scott, a fellow legislator, to the county jail. The shooting occurred in the Senate chamber shortly before 2 p.m. when Scott, a member of the House of Representatives from Hughes County, accosted Anglin, who is a senator from the same county. Now, that's like uh, Wetumpka, my, my Wetumpka peeps. Uh, that's an interesting place to be. I've been there a couple of times. Wait, this is 1947. This Nin- isn't like old West times. No, this, this is, is like-, like world war two is going <laughs> yeah. on. Um, and so witnesses said Scott walked into the chamber to talk with England briefly and then pulled out a gun and shot him as England staggered. He pulled out his own gun. Uh, <gasps> senators differ about whether England actually fired a shot. England said he didn't. Scott said he thought England fired searching for a reason for the shooting. They said England's law firm at Holdenville had represented Scott's wife in a recent divorce action. Mm. The bullet struck Anglin at the left hip, at the lower back, at the hospital. Following examination and treatment of the flesh wound, Anglin was in good humor. Um, So they were both armed. This happened on the floor? Yeah, are senators just packing heat? Senators, for sure. It's still legal to have guns on the floor. No, it's not legal to have guns on the floor. It is still still not legal to have guns on the floor. But we have pointed out several times in Oklahoma history that the House member did actually hit the senator. So we're pretty sure they were a better shot. I don't know if we can joke about that <laughs> since it was over 60 years ago. But Maybe. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> Is it too soon? It's, it's still too soon. It's a good reminder that, like, we shouldn't do this. <laughs> like, thank, it should be civil. When you guys give, you know, lip service to, like, bipartisan, yay, whoo, you know, like, let's actually not let it get this bad. Step number one, don't shoot each other. Uh, the it's Just an update in the in the. I guess later, maybe the afternoon edition of the 1947 uh, Oklahoman. uh, It was, I think, it was not the first time gunplay had added spice to the political life of Tom Anglin, the veteran politician who numerous times had served as acting governor. Like what? When the lieutenant governor? I don't know. uh, Was acquitted by a district court in Holdenville in 1931 of charges to assault with intent to kill Tom Phillips editor of the Holdenville Daily News. So there's um, our mad oh, at the media. No. There's our mad at the media. <laughs> mad at the media. So <laughs> don't try to shoot the media. I actually, we do have a mad at the media. I saw on the Axios newsletter uh, that there were, I think, 50 journalists around the world killed last year. And 84% of them, uh, according to Axios, were targeted for doing their jobs. So, Ooh. you know, just terrible. So like maybe people can like chill a little bit. I thought the inauguration yesterday, it was a good unity message. Representative, any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think the same thing. I mean, I I voted for for Donald Trump. Joe Biden is not who I voted for. But as has been said before, his success is our success as a nation. I wish him nothing but the best. I I wish him great success. I I have a lot of fear nationally that that, you know, when the Republicans are in power, they they do everything they can to not work with the other side. I have real worry when the Democrats are in power. They're going to do everything they can to not work with the other side. And that's just not good for our democracy. So I'm really hoping uh, uh, President, Vice President Harris and President Biden have nothing but success. And I hope they find a way to unify the country because I live in this country. I need it to go well, as mm-hmm. we all do. And, and, and that's what we want to see. Amen. Yeah.
Good. Okay. How is that dynamic on the state level, like the working across the aisle stuff? You know, it's a lot better. The state level is great. I, I text with Leader Virgin all the time. Uh, we we really get along. As a matter of fact, that's one of the surprising things. I think people would be surprised how well we get along. I'm nervous as you have um, freshmen coming in that we don't ramp up that rhetoric. I don't want to become like the national stage. We we have a group of freshmen that came in during a very uh, and freshmen, sophomores came in during, during a very nationally, uh, we'll say divided time, for lack of a better word to say. And we get along within the Oklahoma Capitol. I mean, we like the people. I've known Leader Virgin for 20 years. I've known her family since before my, my parents and her parents were friends. We can disagree and not be jerks about it. And that's what we do well at the Capitol. Yeah, and I think it was, you know, I think that relationship kind of bottomed out in 2017, 2018. It was awful. The, the, you know, dispute over how to raise revenue and, and, you know, just like at home, uh, when you don't have any money and you've got to make tough decisions, things get tense. But the next year when everybody had money, you guys were slapping each other on the back and, you know, good friends. I mean, and, and some of it was also, you know, some things had gotten taken away. I mean, I was a big proponent of, of you guys bringing back the softball game, you know, uh, and people in the media had, had gone out of their way to like, Oh, they're playing softball on Wednesday at three thirty. You know how could they be doing that? This is Dems and versus Republicans. Was that you saying Phil Cross? Uh, <laughs> no, I did not say it. Uh, I did not. But you know, um, or was that a Lacroix burp? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, anyway, the uh, point being that you know that got people felt like oh we can't do that because of the optics, and I think what when it returned showed hey you actually work better. When you know people outside That's of, right. you know, we're not wearing suits, we're not on the floor with microphones, we're not, you know, shaking our hand as we hold our notes and, you know, chastise our opponents. Uh, we're actually doing something. Well, especially for me, because oftentimes that's my job. I mean, oftentimes my job as floor leaders to be the bad guy. Uh, and there are multiple divides in the Capitol that all needs to work together. You have the Democrat-Republican divide, which everybody knows about. You have an urban-rural divide that that is very prominent. Uh, you have a House-Senate divide that is very prominent. Um, for us to be successful, and I've said this all the time, you have the legislature-governor divide. But here's the reality. The legislature can't succeed and the governor fail, and the governor can't succeed and the legislature fail. It doesn't work that way. The House can't win and the, and the Senate lose and, and not vice versa. We all rise or fall together. Everybody tried that last session, didn't And it did not go well. <laughs> and and, that, and, I, and we point that out. I mean, we as you talked about the great session, but last session went way off the rails. And I don't think people want to sit through another session like that. Uh, that. I think what people want is for us to move the state forward. And that's with all those divides, Oklahoma, Republicans, Democrats, urban, rural. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an... I am an urban Republican, an Oklahoma City Republican, which is like one step above a unicorn. It's not a lot of us <laughs> in the legislature, um, but but some of it's our job to come together. That's the other reason. As as urban Republicans and Democrats, if we want to represent some of those interests, we have to work together. Like we have to. Let's talk about the big item at hand: the state budget. Yeah. And where do you obviously Kevin Wallace and your uh, caucus would be the person to talk. Uh, to put Angela to sleep with uh, <laughs> his comments on this, he can rattle that off and it's hard to follow. But where are we generally? Well, and, and I don't want to get too wonky on this, but as you we talked about how much I like non-doc before we'd ever met because you dig in deep and you give people the details. So without giving getting too putting everybody to sleep, uh, the details <laughs> are we had a lot more money to budget last year that was approved than what we actually budgeted. 
we budgeted a lot less than we were able to than we were able to because we saw the, the the economy going down. Because of that, it actually looks like we're going to have this phenomenon where we will have a little more money to budget than we were than we budgeted last year. Now it will still be a decrease because the appropriatable amount, which by the way, the legislature doesn't pick how much they can budget. That's a separate board that the legislature is not even on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's too early to say exactly what that's going to look like with the pandemic raging. I think it's almost irresponsible for me to come in and say, here's the number. But I can say it's not going to be nearly as bad as people thought it was going to be. And a lot of that's because we made a hard vote last year and went ahead and made some of those cuts to make sure we kind of smoothed out the glide paths. But And that vote and those cuts happened before quarantine, before COVID, or is that after? After COVID. It's a great question. Okay. So all those were after COVID. So COVID, I consider the start of COVID spring break because mm-hmm. um, that's, you know, right when the, the break that I didn't get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the break that many kids got and never got back. Right? Yeah. I never got <laughs> back to school. Endless spring break. Um, yeah. Angela's child, she's just white knuckling it over here. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that they're still on. And, and that's another topic for another day. But it's funny we joke about it, but it's not good for kids. I mean, we got to. We're going to find a way to deal with that. I'm afraid we're going to have a whole COVID generation that we're just going to see this dip as a result. And we're all doing our best. But as adults, we need to keep thinking about how it affects kids. But it was all after that. So we we saw the economy go down. We go into the shutdown. We've got to come back. You talk about bipartisanship. Uh, Leader Virgin and I come up with COVID protocols that we both 100% signed on to. We wrote them together so we could come in and function as a government. And now that sounds weird. But you got to remember back then, that was a big deal. Everybody was staying home. We bring 101 people from all part in the house from all parts of the state. Government literally needed to function. I mean, needed needed to continue to have that stability. We were able to pass a budget, which was very impressive given the the cuts. We had no idea what the cuts were going to be because you don't know at that point. You just you didn't take a lot to look around and say planes aren't flying and people aren't driving. Oil and gas went to negative. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be his. That, that was on the same day as something else happened. Too. Yeah, it was a negative yeah. number. Like that, that's right. insane. That that's and not even a small, like a negative 40 or something. Yeah. It, was a, it was a significant number. Uh, it might have been in the 20s, but it was it wasn't a negative buck or two. Right. Um, so we knew we knew there was going to be problems. So we did it the best job we could. We cut as much as we could. The governor wanted to cut far more than the House and the Senate did. We made some hard decisions. We moved some money around uh, that we're going to have to pay back. We took some money. Uh, short term out of teacher retirement that we said we're going to pay back and it's going to get paid back this session. We took some money short term out of transportation. We said it was going to get paid back and it's going to get paid back this session. But those were the hard choices that politically would be very difficult to do. Politically, it's hard to stand up for that. Uh, But the reality is that's what you had to do in order to survive. And and we got it done. Yeah. And I think the Board of Equalization meets early February. Yep. And that's the the state leader uh, board, which we were actually talking on Twitter about how it's odd that the people who are in the legislature who focus on the budget have aren't involved there to give, you know, numbers and historic perceptions. But anyway, the, at that meeting that they had in December, uh, you know, a lot of the headlines from my peers in, in the media were like, oh, we're going to, you know, Oklahoma has more money to spend than, you know, we expected. And we got, you know, $600, $600 million more than we thought we might. And we've got some extra money. And the reality is, as you just said, we're actually still in a hole because uh, not only the things you talked about paying back, but there's property tax reimbursements, there's flex benefits payments for teachers. And then one of the big ones really is Medicaid expansion, which we're going to, this is my segue into Medicaid expansion. 
uh, Andrea, prop quiz, do you remember the rough price tag on Medicaid expansion? Real high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, $164 million. Uh, I was going to say 150 Oh, there you go. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, yeah, that like, you know, pocket change, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so let's talk there. What are some of the options for uh, funding Medicaid expansion? I think the what is called a shop fee, which is a supplemental hospital offset payment program. Uh, the shop fee is probably going to be a part of that, but it might only be, what, 75%? So so let's let, let's start with, and I'm guilty of this too. We say things like funding Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion is now in the Oklahoma Constitution. It's not about funding Medicaid expansion. It's about funding every other part of healthcare. Like right. Medicaid will be funded. If we give if we give the healthcare authority $150 million and that's all we get, they're going to fund Medicaid and they're going to let they're going to stop doing everything else. Because it's in the constitution. Because it's in the constitution. Which was one of the reasons putting in the constitution is a bad idea. But it is, it's there now. That's the way it was drafted. And a lot of that was legislative inaction. We Stitt should have signed and Governor Stitt should have signed uh the plan that we passed last year, but we didn't. So so now here we are. So really, here, here's the reality. You can only spend dollars one time. We're not like the federal government. We can't print money. Medicaid's going to be expanded. The, you're going to do it one of three ways. And these are actually really one of two ways. And there's only two ways. You're going to find a way to raise taxes. The only thing that could possibly be palatable is the shop, the shop fee. That's it. There's nothing else. And that's not even really a tax. That's like a voluntary payment that hospitals make. They say, they yep. say okay, we're going to give you a dollar because if I give that dollar into this fund and then we tell the federal government we're using that for Medicaid, we'll get nine dollars. They'll match it. That's exactly yeah. right, which is why it's palatable because it's not really a tax increase. I mean, it's it's a it's a way to get those extra funds. Other than that, there's not going to be other tax increases. So you fund it out of growth revenue, you make cuts. But that, that's what's going to happen. And I think I think sometimes. So so how do you make cuts? You either make cuts by taking it from other areas of government or you lower provider rates. But when we talk about Medicaid expansion, I think there are too many people that, frankly, politicians that aren't doing a good enough job. We act like everything's going to be good and we got to find a way to fund this 150, 200 million, whatever it's going to cost. But it's the exact opposite. This 150, 200 is funded. Like that, that, right. That's getting paid. That's not optional. The question is, do we use growth revenue or do we cut in order to do that? Now, I think long-term Medicaid expansion will pay for itself. Long-term with the match, you're going to have enough growth, growth revenue because the matching funds that come in, it's a short-term issue. It's a right. cash flow issue. So I think if we can find a way, and by the way, while I'm kind of down on it, now I'm going to be positive again. <laughs> we found a way to stabilize much worse issues than this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the reality if you're listening. So yeah, you got this. You got this cash flow issue, but we're going to find a way to stay. So practically, you're going into the session knowing that you're going to have to figure out this enormous money issue. Like, how do you even start doing that in the weeks that you have to do it? Man, that's such a great question. So we've already started. So budget meetings are happening right now. We had our first budget meeting last week. Um, Chairman Wallace is meeting with people all the time. Uh, I'm more on the policy side of the house and the budget side of the house. But we've started that earlier. What we assign members. So one of the things we've done since I've been floor leader Every member is assigned one sub appropriations and budget committee. So Democrat and Republicans, so they have one you know committee that can really dig into that section of the budget. Uh, and those meetings are happening right now. It's compounded with the fact it's not like you can even write a budget now because you don't know exactly how much money you're going to have till February. Um, but we start that processes and working with one of the things we have done better under Governor Stitt is working with the agencies. So really having, a, having an open and transparent relationship with the agencies on 
you know, if you're going to get extra money, where are you going to spend it? Or if you're going to get cuts, where would they come from so we don't cut core services? Because at the end of the day, we we want to spend every taxpayer, taxpayer dollar wisely, but there are services government needs to provide. Well, there was a lot of pushback, too, because he was trying to address the sort of theatrical show of you have a legislative budget meeting, and so you bring in the Department of Health or the Department... And they say, what's your budget request? Well, my budget request is uh, we need another $800 million because if we do this, we can then reach out to every child. And, and you know, everybody already knows, well, there's not another $800 million. And you have 17 agencies come in and say, well, if I just had another $75 million, well, if I just had an... And so there was an effort, and I don't know if it's that way, if it stayed that way, but there was an effort to say, look, don't, don't come in and tell us you need a 35% budget increase. Tell us what your actual key projects are. Well, and that was the norm under Governor Fallon. And I don't know what it was that was. I have some theories as I think to why it, was, it changed. I think under Governor Henry as yeah. well. Yeah. And, and, and you would get these ridiculous requests. And I, I think I added up one year when we had like a $300 million shortfall, total budget request from agencies was like an additional $2.9 billion. I mean, it's, it's, it's not even living in. And they would use those numbers to scare people. Yeah. So they would well, put and them And it out. would get reported. People would, you know, a journalist would go to the budget hearing and say, well, the State Department of Education, they've requested another $500 million. And yep. I was I was always like, well, why are we reporting that? The public <laughs> doesn't have, un- understand that this is not, doesn't mean anything. Well, it needed some context yeah. as, to, as to what it was. So one of the things we changed under Governor Stitt, but, but the old way of doing things um, for Governor Henry, say, Governor Fallon, everyone beforehand, these state agencies didn't work for the governor and they also didn't work for the legislature. They worked for an appointed board that nobody got to vote on. Well, one of the things, and the problem was, like, let's take DOC, and I'm just, I'm not picking on any director. I'm just an entity. DOC. Department of Corrections. Yeah, Department of Corrections. Thank you. Only <laughs> answered to their board. That's it. So if their board's decision, who was never answered to the people, was, well, we just want a bunch of money, then he would go up and say, I want a bunch of money. So now that we've changed that, these top agencies answer to the governor. And I ran those bills and I told this to the governor and Governor Stitt's done a good job at this. When we were first running these, I said, you need to understand something. The problem with having control is you have control. So if they come in and ask for an outlandishly stupid budget request, we're going to take it out on you. Like, we're not going to take it out on them. That's your that's your man. That's your woman. That's the person that you put in there. And since then, we've got a lot because there do need to be increases in areas. But it's not helpful to go in and say, you want to hear what's practical. Yeah. What can we do for another five million, not another five hundred million when we're facing a six hundred million dollar shortfall? And when you're working together with the experts, it makes a better budget. Yeah. Because the problem is what would happen is the experts weren't really involved in the budgeting process because they were asking for something ridiculous. So the budgeting, the the budget, the the people in the legislature would just kind of go into their corner and do the best they could. Now there's more of a working relationship. So the experts of the agencies can say, hey, we really do need this, fund it. That's been bad. And I don't want to get off on this tangent, but one of the other conundrums, you like if you get if you're a state agency and you do a really good job and you save your money and you have some savings and then a tough budget year comes around and the legislature's like, oh, wait, you got an extra million dollars over there that you didn't spend. Well, OK, we're going to you know shift that into your budget for next year. You know, you can't use that for your other projects. It's totally true. It's awful. Now, <laughs> we, now, we've gotten away from a lot of that, but absolutely that the, the money would be sitting there, so it would get swiped. So the, the incentive would be spend the money all, all the, at the end. Right. Well, one of the things Chairman Thompson and Kevin Wallace are doing, Chairman Wallace, they're kind of looking at agency spend throughout the year to avoid that. 
to avoid the massive fourth quarter spend uh, when you're getting rid of it all. And we also have done a better job not punishing agencies because think about it, sometimes you got to save up for a big big time project. So yeah, you got money in the you got money in there, but you have this capital improvement, you have this IT investment that makes far more sense to invest over multiple years than just being able to pay for. Real ID is a good example of that. Let's stay on the budget for a second. I might get back to uh, Medicaid in a minute, but let's talk about the education funding formula and what's going on with Epic Charter Schools. And it, just briefly, if we had Megan Prather here, our, our wonderful education reporter, follow her on Twitter at, at Megan Prather 405. Uh, she would talk about the what is called the mid-year adjustment, which just happened. And essentially in Oklahoma, part of state funding follows the child, right? The idea is that if if the if the five of us sitting here at this table are all school districts, wherever the most children go, we get more funding. Uh, sort of, sort of. Now there's an equalization formula that equalizes that, and a three-year local. High. Yeah, and there's a three-year average of all this. And and right, I'm I'm uh, top level. Brent Bushy with the Public Resource Center is like, you're not getting the details, right? Uh, yeah, he's twitching somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Brad Clark at OSD yeah, is right. sweating, scratching his face. Um, but so there was the, the headline uh, was that Epic, which is now the largest district in the state and had, while traditional public schools saw enrollment declines, uh, Epic has seen increases and uh, as a result, that mid-year adjustment was a whopping $156 million over to Epic. And then a bunch of other school districts lost a little bit of money, right? So because you have your estimated enrollment at the start of the year, then they turn in numbers, I think, what, mid-October? And then that's calculated in mid-December. And so you have all this extra money going to Epic while they're being continually criminally investigated for, you know, whether they broke the law or not, we'll, we'll kind of find out. Um, State Department of Education and State Auditor's Office alleges uh, some things violated law, but it could also be like the State Department of Health from a few years ago where the law wasn't written well enough to prevent this. You know, did they yeah. walk that line and just take advantage of the loopholes? So I say all of that is there's talk. Representative Ronnie Johns in your caucus told me he thinks maybe there should be a consideration of like other states have done with these virtual charter schools and say, well, there's a different funding formula for virtual charter schools because they don't need buildings. They don't need playgrounds. They don't have gymnasiums. They don't offer these things. We're, do you think there's going to be any discussion and movement on this? Oh, yeah. So I think so. I'm going to unpack a lot in there. So the first Good, thing is there's packed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the first thing is there's going to be a really big bill getting rid of the three or high. Uh, we are going to move more towards a money follows the kid formula. Um, there's going to be two big education pushes next year. One is going to be moving to more of a one and a half year adjustment. So the dollars truly follow the child as they go. And the other is going to be beeping up Oklahoma's um, open transfer rules in public schools only to give students more mobility, give parents more mobility to be able to pick which public school that kid goes to. And we're going to get rid of the th their child goes to and we're going to get rid of the three year high and move to more of a one and a half two year high. So there's more real time movement with those dollars. Are you going to abolish the OSSAA while you're at it? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. Well, uh, we've got a couple reps that, that that think that that think they should be more concerned about students than they are. I mean, to be honest, oh, I saw yeah. I saw I have video of uh, just a horrible like a unanimous decision they made against some kid who was who had been homeless and he was oh, yeah. here in Oklahoma City and he was. Um, they, they, they said that because he was enrolled as a freshman and sophomore at school in Oklahoma city, he couldn't have an extra year of eligibility as a fifth year senior to play football in little acts. I yeah. think it was. It, it's disgusting. And it was, 
it was and they and I asked the kid afterwards. Nobody asked him on the board, and as the kid, I was like, "Did you did you play any sports when you were at Northwest Classen?" He said, "No, not a, not not one down, not at all." And I said, "So you got one year." But anyway, so they just they don't. I there's my soapbox. Like, get it together. You well, guys. well, I will tell you, there's a, there's a lot more members that, that they're going to be shocked. There's a lot of they're getting real frustrated with the OSSAA, yeah. and they want to see more decisions based upon kids. I mean, more decisions based upon what's best for them as opposed to coaches or, frankly, school districts. I mean, at the end of the day, education exists for children, hard stop. Now, you help children by putting them in the school with a wonderful teacher, you with a good administrator is how you help teachers. But at the end of the day, that's why education exists. If it exists for any other reason, we're doing it wrong. So I think what we're going to be looking to do next year, which should go pretty smoothly, is because, and by the way, I was going to hit, this will hit Epic the hardest, um, that this change will hit Epic more than anyone else. Because Epic got so many kids, because if you're going to move to an online only option, lots of parents decided they wanted to go to the school that's been doing online only for their entire time. Right. And that's Ep- what Epic had an advantage because they've been doing this for a it's what they decade. Do. Or so, so when now you're also seeing lots of parents that frankly either don't like that their kids are in school full time or don't like that their kids are not in school. I mean that I get those both both ways. So Angela is nodding furiously. <laughs> There's parents that don't want their children in school. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand that. Well, that's well, not well, and Angela, to that point too. I mean, the, I think that's something some schools are missing though, because what I'm hearing overwhelmingly for parents is they want an in-person option. They're not happy that. Uh, well, let's call them out. Yes, Oklahoma sir. City Public Schools in Tulsa. <laughs> yeah. Yes. O- Oklahoma City Public Schools in Tulsa are not giving parents an in-person option. Yukon Public Schools was shutting down at times where I'm getting calls from parents where Mustang right down the road has been open. And this is not, by the way, private school choice. These are public schools. And we're gonna do better, we're gonna do a better job giving parents these options for their kids to go to public schools. All of that is gonna hit schools like Epic. Epic's gonna go way down when we go back to in-person options. That that's just naturally going to happen there. I talked to tons of parents that are in Epic because either they're trapped in an only online system or a system they don't want to be in. So, yeah. Now, now then let's go on to the allegations of. of so that's the globally, because for me, it's not about Epic. It's about kids. So every discussion on education, if we're not talking about kids, we're doing it wrong. Now, of course, we talk about teachers because teachers are who help kids. We talk about administrators because administrators are who help teachers. We talk about districts because we want pride in our areas. So they'll have pride to go to schools. They're all tied to kids. When I used to teach law school, I used to say, make your arguments tethered to the law. Whatever you're going to do, tether it to kids like you had a tether on your on your tether ball. But I think with Epic, absolutely, if Epic broke the law, we need to do something about it. If, if Epic broke the law, then they need to be held accountable. I would not support getting rid of Epic. I would support getting rid of the people inside that broke the law. Now, if they didn't break the law, then we need to look at the law and say, do we like what they did? And do we need to change the law? That did not happen with the State Department <laughs> of Health situation when the audit made 12 or 18 recommendations. So exactly. Is there a is there a plan not to just let that shit sit on a shelf? Wait, what's that situation? That was a couple of years ago uh, when you guys had like a bunch of hearings, basically uh, Terry Klein and uh, Buff. No. Not but uh, well, uh, Preston Julie was over Cox there, came. but Julie Cox came. Who Preston and fixed they, they were at the state <laughs> health department and they uh, uh, moved money. They commingled funds from the federal government, state government, in a way where people were duly working on projects, and then all of a sudden one day they couldn't make payroll, and 
they thought they'd lost $30 million, but then turns out they'd found it. And <laughs> I remember. sounds like me on a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> if it's $30 million, we need to hang out more. But um, <laughs> if, if it's so, 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 yeah, so what happened? I remember that. Remember, I'm the one that passionately made the plea to give them extra money because I had the director of the healthcare authority come in and say, if you don't give us this extra money right away, we won't make payroll. You mean State Department of Health? Or State Department. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm, I'm no, so sorry. State Department of Health. Uh, yeah, so I argued on the floor that we've got to transfer this money. I know it's fast. And that's very frustrating because it turned out afterwards the, the money was never really even gone. They just didn't know where it was. Right. And they didn't they didn't need the extra the money. The Department of Agriculture had a similar but smaller experience <laughs> with that. So so well, some of the things have changed that were that were right. required. They moved they moved on to the people source or they moved on the so they were using this like shadow software. Yeah. So a lot of the best practices did get implemented when we had the changes in the new Department of Health. Um, now, and, and frankly, right now with the Department of Health taking on, I'm of the opinion the Department of Health is doing too much. I think the Department of Health was doing too much before we passed medical marijuana. Now with it running OMMA, which is a billion dollar industry, that's just this like little department inside the Department of Health, which doesn't make any sense. Um, then on top of that, the vaccines. I've heard this, that you might come in here and talk about how you think OMMA should be its own standalone agency. I or... do think it should be its own standalone uh -huh. agency. Okay. <laughs> that That's a good transition. What are we going to see with medical marijuana this year? The big medical marijuana omnibus bill of last year was vetoed at the last minute. And, and it was, that was a giant cluster. I remember... Yeah, that was a giant cluster, and to get it back and forth, and Petgatter had to go get eye surgery, and he was the author, and then and then you guys did this and gaveled out, and then the governor vetoed it, and everybody thought they were going to get home delivery of weed. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anyway, so, so, so what are we doing this year? Yeah, so so without reliving the past, that was a cluster. Uh, here's what we got to do. So uh, May fifteenth, I, I remember the day. It's seared in my brain. So medical marijuana in Oklahoma right now is a billion dollar industry. The biggest problem we have in medical marijuana is not our laws. It's our lack of enforcement. So one of the things we need to do is start enforcing the laws that we have. Before we add a whole bunch of new regulations right now, there was an international story where, where growers were literally bragging in the story about how they were violating labor laws and violating the laws of the state of Oklahoma. I immediately sent that to OMMA, and I'll say this on here, to OMA and OSBI and said, you should be humiliated. This is awful. Like, this is against the law. It's in here. Go shut them down. I'm a defender of every business that's doing it right. If you're on there, you're following the rules and you're doing it right. That I want the industry to survive. I want it to prosper. I've seen the benefits of medical marijuana in my own family. I mean, I've seen it with my niece. This is how I got involved. And it's weird how a Southern Baptist deacon that doesn't use marijuana at all, just not my thing, has become the medical marijuana guy. That's probably why I'm the right guy to do it, because for me, it is about those health benefits. And it's super frustrating. Seed to sale. I passed that in the unity bill a year and a half, two years, two and a half years ago now. And we still don't have it implemented. Um, we, that would we, be like a tracking system for every, so you would know what. You would know, you would know where the product came from, where it is going, and you would know it's not being diverted into the black market. And even more importantly, the end user would know that it's safe. They would know right. that it's been tested. Uh, we haven't set up the labs yet. That, right. that, that's supposed to be checking every two and a half years is ridiculous. Now I'm not blaming anyone with the OMMA. I think the OMMA is doing the very best job that they can. The problem is, I think as soon as people get really good in the OMMA, they get they get bumped up. I mean, they, they because like it's, into the health department. Yeah. Elsewhere. And, okay. Yeah. They, they get in. And I'd never hate on somebody for getting promoted. That's great. Like, how can I look at someone and say, you can't better yourself? You can't move in. 
So I'm going to file a bill this year to do that. Uh, the government make it its own standalone agency. No, it's going to be a little different. This okay. is the first time I've talked about it, but it'll get filed sometime Woo! today. Ooh, yeah. I'm so excited. Uh, well, there's some people in this building maybe that won't be. Uh, I'm going to try to merge it with ABLE. I think OMMA and ABLE should be together. So I've been told the executive doesn't want it to be its own standalone agency. So what's the biggest problem with medical marijuana right now? It's not, it's not new regulation. That's not what we need. We need to consistently, ethically enforce the regulation that we have. What's an agency that's really good at that? ABLE. That What's able? I'm sorry. <laughs> the Alcohol Beverage Law Enforcement Agency. Got it. Uh, <laughs> they've got a they've got a really good ALJ over there. Uh, but they are not necessarily viewed as the same. A thing. friend of the human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A friend yeah. of the human. One of these things is I mean, not like the other. I don't know that a lot of people love able, so that might be interesting from a PR standpoint. I, like, I, it will be. I think what you would have, and frankly, uh, the medical marijuana industry, if we were to merge those two, would be substantially larger than the alcohol industry. I mean, I, I think it would be the bigger of the two industries that, that it's in there. Well, uh, you just, I have a great idea for the name of it. Just call it Crossfade. Crossfade. Okay, there you go. Uh, so let's. So anything else on medical marijuana real quick? No, I think that's it. And I, I, other than that, I don't think there'll be huge changes. I've got to get my license renewed. Another $250 to the state. You guys can go spend it on whatever budget <laughs> hole you have. I, I just, my concern is that I don't feel like two years into this now or whatever. I, I walk into these dispensaries and it's, just some kid who just likes weed and you know they're not telling me anything I, I haven't i don't feel like i've learned hardly anything you know now that i have a medical card Preach. you know Preach. you go somewhere and you're mm -hmm. like i need something to help me with sleep and they're like well this is indica it's pretty good this is the fire yeah. right and here bro <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, wouldn't it be neat if we had an agency whose major function was to fix stuff like that Who's or just training, function. you know, I don't think like the, the Department of Health wanted to have a pharmacist be required at every dispensary or whatever, which is a little bit overboard. Extra. But I do think there should be some basic training and outreach. And I, I don't it's just it seems to me like I'm not getting a better understanding of how these different strains are affecting me. You know, I walk in some guys like, what's your favorite strain? You know, and I'm like. Bananas Foster. I don't know. You know, I, don't know what, I don't know what any of these names mean. They're all terrible. Sounds so. to me like you're ready to jump on the jump on my bill and not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Yeah, and try uh, to get some of this stuff done. Hashtag Crossfade. Okay. <laughs> um, so let's proud go, to have your support. Let's go. Let's talk about another uh, healthcare component. We talked about Medicaid earlier. The other fight about Medicaid, which in Oklahoma is called Sooner Care. Uh, and it's a sort of a federal state. Medicaid is a federal state partnership uh, born the same time as Medicare in the 60s. Johnson's Great Society was the idea that, oh, we actually have people living in abject poverty in, you know, uh, a lot of places. And maybe we should allow them to have, you know, access to health care. Right. So it, it's a large agency. It, it, it's a it's a heavy budget item uh, just on the state side. And, and a lot of people, by the way, when we talk about the budget, don't remember that. The legislature only appropriates, you know, eight, seven, seven billion dollars of a of a 20 ish billion, About 25 dollar, billion, 25 billion budget now. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of stuff that either just comes straight from the feds or it's what's called off apportionments, which is off the top. You guys adjusted some of those last year for teachers retirement and and road funding, which will get adjusted back and not going to affect pensions. You remember that when everybody thought that you'd you'd stolen all. The oh, money yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the pensioners. Um I was really, I was really, I was really happy. By the way, the people that ran those pensions went in and said that we did that. When in fact, we did not. That was really 
concerning that the supposed experts came out and did that. That was helpful. Um, yeah. But the big question is what's called managed Medicaid. And uh, managed Medicaid, in short, is the idea that um, maybe you can hire a private company and pay them X amount of percent or dollars uh, to find inefficiencies in the populations that you might manage. Um, some people might look at a specific population like the ABD population, which is the age-blind disabled population. Or some people would say, hey, let's just do it all across the board for kids, for adults, for whoever. Um, and the governor's office really wants to go with managed Medicaid. Senator Kim David in the Senate is a big proponent of, of managed Medicaid. But then you have a lot of other people like Senator Rob Standridge, uh, who's anti-managed Medicaid. Everybody I'm talking about is a Republican. You've got a lot of rural lawmakers who are not pro-managed Medicaid. The hospitals are not against it or not for it necessarily. Where do you stand? And then what do you think this fight is going to be? Because it could be an effort by lawmakers to block the governor's attempt at implementing managed Medicaid. Yeah, there could be. So where I stand on this is the vast majority of states and the nation have some form of managed Medicaid. So managed Medicaid to me is a word that doesn't have a ton of meaning because that, that could mean so many different things. Am I for managing our Medicaid population? Yes. To a large extent, we already have managed Medicaid for our dual eligible population right now. Now, I have some real concerns about the RFP that I've seen. Uh, I have some real concerns using an outside, outside of the state company to come in and do this. I don't know why we can't do it inside the healthcare authority. Uh, I think it can do the exact same function that we're doing right now. But the other reality is we had a bill last year that would have essentially, well, wouldn't have essentially, would have required legislative approval in order to have uh, the governor sign off to manage Medicaid. Uh, the hospital association, for other reasons unrelated to the bill, decided to pull their support from that bill. So it didn't pass with a uh, supermajority. It was then vetoed by the governor. Right now, it is within the gut. The governor's in the driver's seat on managed Medicaid. There's not a lot the legislature can do. If he, he has that authority under the federal guidelines to issue that order, the question then becomes, how could the legislature stop it? So there's only two ways. The there's only one, one more direct way. There's probably more than two, but the most direct way to stop the managed Medicaid is to line item and out of the budget. So then governor has line item veto power. He's going to line item veto that in the budget. And then you would have to get two thirds in the House and two thirds in the Senate to override it. Highly unlikely to happen. I mean, just now I'm talking, been doing this for, been floor leader for a long time. You count I'm, numbers for a living. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, that's, that's my job. Do I have the votes? <laughs> Typically, uh, with one big plan A plus vote uh, instead, you don't put things up on the board that you uh, unless you know they're going to pass, right? It is very rare that we put something on the board that I do not know is going to pass. Or if I'm putting it up, I know it's going to fail and there's a reason that, that we're putting it up there. So what what I, I thought so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there's a method to it. So I have some real concerns with man. I'm not against managed Medicaid as a, as a program in general, but the problem is I don't, I don't know what that means. I'm against contracting with an out-of-state company out-of-state company because you only have so many dollars and them taking a third of the pie and leaving the rest to pay providers that I got a problem with that 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 that's the issue so I it's going to be a tough decision as you said leader David who's very powerful in the Senate is very much for it um the health chairs in the house in the in the house and the Senate between um uh, Marcus McIntyre and Greg McCourtney are both against it I just have a hard time seeing ways to make it Go uh, seeing ways for the legislature to fight it with the two thirds vote, absent the bill that was passed last year. So then my position would be: uh, Medicaid takes care of our most vulnerable population, and some of the things I've been advising the hospitals. Let's get in and direct it as best we can. I th I want tax dollars tax dollars spent as efficiently as possible. So there are parts of managed Medicaid that I like, 
picking up the phone and calling diabetes patients. This is managed Medicaid. Picking right. up the phone and calling diabetes patients and saying, are you taking your diabetes medicine? Because they understand if those patients take that medicine, they're less likely to go to hospital, which is cheaper. Or, calling or even patients. calling them and seeing, you know, trying to see if they have mental health issues. Is that a barrier for them to take their uh, exactly. glucose, just to monitor their blood sugar, uh, take their medication, all those sorts of things, outreach based. And actually that happens at a micro level within any prominent, reasonable health system already. But the question then becomes, why do we need to pay a private company a percentage of Medicaid to do that? Why can't we just do that internally? Then when I talk about doing it through the healthcare authority, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, that that's the question that you just asked. Why are we paying some out-of-state company when, why can't we do this inside the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority? And that's my question. Like, why can't we go in? Because you, you save money one of two ways. You save in ways you'll like. We do that with our dual eligibles right now picking up the phone. Sometimes you save money by giving more services. You give more mental health services so they don't end up in crisis. That's managed. That's mani managed right. care. You manage somebody with congestive heart failure, keeps them out of the ER. And, or training them. Hey, right. what'd you eat? I mean, literally, a simple summer, what'd you eat last night? Hey, you got congestive heart failure. That burger may not have been a good idea. Maybe we should, maybe we should try something else. Educating people. Now, the question then becomes, why are we paying an out-of-state company to do something that, that why can't we do it? And, and that's the conversation that I don't feel like I've got a good answer for. I've got it, why that can't be done inside the healthcare authority. The legislators that are against managed Medicaid, is it because of this outside contracting issue or is there another? No, it's good. It, it, so it, it is not, it's not about, for me, it's about that. Yeah. Uh, they're afraid of the other thing, which is just cutting provider rates. I want the real money has to go to that company somehow. And and that's the it, key. It, that company has to is a for-profit company typically. Yeah. That is they have to make money to pay their people and they'll get some of it from savings, but they typically other states, Florida, Iowa, I believe have looked back after 5 10 years of doing it and said, mm, "We actually didn't save money overall." Or, or they cut too much provider rates and it doesn't matter if they're for-profit or not for-profit. The idea that not-for-profits don't make right. a profit is insane. Yeah. Of course they do. I mean, that, I, make a, I make a better salary now that we're nonprofit than we. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> did yeah, yeah. We yeah. What it means is you don't answer to shareholders, and you have some public function, and you're and you're doing it. And you you're not incentivized to maximize your profit because what you make is your is your salary. So I'm not saying that there's not benefits for not for profits, but it's not about being a for profit company. For me, it's this simple: a dollar can only spend one. If you do, unless you work for the federal government, you can just go print more. Other than that, a dollar can be spent one time. Oklahoma has one dollar. That's when where we get we have one source of dollars. That's our that's that's our citizens. That's where we get our money. So when we take that money, we can only spend it once. So you either are really good at what you do and you manage care, so you spend less by providing more, or you cut rates. And that's the other fear. The fear is that they'll come in and one of the ways they'll do it is to cut rates. That's the and and by the way, I, I'm I want as many dollars as we take as a state for healthcare to be spent on providers as much as possible, because spending them on providers means they're giving services. So you want as low administrative function as you can. Now you got to have administrative function. You can't just say it's a complete and total flow through and we just trust you to bill right. Like that doesn't work. But that that's really the issue from the rural perspective. It's not so much the out-of-state versus in-state. That's a big deal to me. Um, it's really, are they going to use that to cut provider rates? And I got to look at the contracts before I'm going to make some global discussion. Cause I do think if we could raise the level, cause there's parts of managed care that everybody's for that healthcare needs to do that healthcare needs to do more of 
than what we're doing now. We need to be more proactive. One of the worst things that's happening for healthcare right now is COVID, and we're not allowing um, other people to go into hospitals. Now, I understand why hospitals are doing it, and I'm not bashing them for not doing it. But if any of you have had a loved one, I had a loved one that just died alone after six days. Oh, no. uh, yeah, just died alone after six days in the hospital by themselves, not having that. I've got another loved one going through cancer treatment right now that we're having a hard time getting people to go in when he meets with his cancer doctors. This is bad for healthcare, period. Why is it bad for healthcare? People going through that need that help. So why don't we all agree also for the managed side of it, we want to help educate people. The problem always becomes anytime you're dealing with private entities and government dollars, you've got to be careful they're not incentivized. And I'm for private public partnerships. You just got to make sure those incentives are aligned and they're not incentivized to cut provider rates. And then we end up losing a bunch of provider rates, which will cost us, Trace, to your point, that will cost us more money. I just think the whole answer is more complicated than more managed care, no managed care. Because I can also show you the same trajectory, which is what I've talked about. Our Medicaid costs are out of control. Luckily, I used to say four years ago, about four years ago, I used to always say, in 30 years, the state of Oklahoma will fund DOC and fund Medicaid, and that's it. Because our costs were just skyrocketing. We've started moving the right direction on DOC. We're not where we need to be. But for the last two and a half, three, four years, DOC population has been decreasing, not increasing, um, which is good. Medicaid, on the other hand, is still skyrocketing. So we've got to find out more, more ways to do that. I'm just not convinced managed Medicaid is the answer. And what I know is not the answer is paying providers less. That's not the answer. Like that, paying providers less doesn't make you less healthy. I had a doctor that had a great line about COVID testing. And he used to say, not getting tested doesn't mean you're negative. <laughs> like that's, that's not how that works. Right. Um, having less providers doesn't make Oklahomans more healthy. And that needs to be our goal. Talking about education for kids. Healthcare is about making Oklahomans more healthy. Let's talk about one more healthcare thing real quick. Uh, the building. I, I know last year you you talked, I think we were talking before the podcast started. I know we're running a little long, uh, but we've got a great guest. They you, love it. You guys came <laughs> back in April masked to the nines all over, you know, on the floor, voting in shifts, everything like that. Two weeks later, half your caucus wasn't wearing masks. Uh you know, a, a bunch of people who were in vulnerable population, uh, you know, the, over in the Senate. I, I don't know if they got some <laughs> some some senior members of the Senate. You know, they're just rocking around, no masks and care. You were dressed like like a Batman villain on the House <laughs> floor in your rubber gloves and your and your black tie. And anyway, but a lot of people are worried that that, hey, we're getting ready to open up this building. And I was I was opposed to the idea. I did not like it when the building was closed down to only lawmakers and media and staff. I thought that was just, I thought that was bad. The reality is the pandemic is a hundred times worse today than it was in April or March of last year. And I, we've already seen story after story and instance after instance where lawmakers are declining to wear masks. Uh, lobbyists are stressed about it. Staff are stressed about it. Other lawmakers are stressed about it. What's going to what are the safety precautions? Is it just going to be that OU Health Sciences Center sign in front of the elevator that says, like, don't touch each other? Or are we going to we got we have a better plan this time? We're, we're going to have a better plan this time. So we've been working on safety precautions. I'm not ready to roll them out yet, uh, but I actually have an entire document of safety precautions. Everything from uh, how are we going to handle uh, how are we going to handle um, uh, protocols on the floor? Uh, you're going to see uh, from uh, floor presentations. Um, we're probably not going to allow people, not 
again, all these, I'm going to be rolling them out soon, but there's going to be a whole list of protocols dealing with how many people can be in the gallery that we brought back fifth floor voting. So members can vote from the gallery. We're going to end up cutting off part of the gallery that will be for members only so they can vote safely up there. We're going to be limiting seating inside committee rooms to only where you can social distance. When we come in, I now am creating a brand new seating chart for state of the state, for example. Um, you're not going to see people sitting three to a seat like you did last year. We're going to have members up in the gallery. As a matter of fact, state of the state is going to have very few people there that are not with the governor, the court, or the legislature. That's pretty much it. And then the media will be back there. And that's and you, it. And you took our glass box away so we can't crack jokes. Well, Trait could, took your glass box away. You got to yeah. blame Trait for that. Yeah, okay. But, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but, I'll open but, records request that. Yeah, so what, so what? He well, also took, well, he also the, took away the sinks in the, in the bathroom where the, where the handicap stall was. Anyway, all right, never mind. We're, I don't know why he did that either. I don't know. But, but the other issue you're going to have there is you're going to have plexiglass in between the members. But, but the real issue that everybody cares. So everybody says they care about protocols. If they do, I'm going to have a page and a half worth of protocols that are very, very strict on the guidelines. I have this theory that most people don't really care about that. What they care about is a mask mandate. I mean, that which, which, by the way, you've been in public health long enough to know they're both important. Like, they both matter. Yeah, but so, I guess my question is, can't you the, – the argument seems to be we can't mandate masks on the floor, but you mandate pants. So I don't understand how you can't mandate masks. You actually, you actually mandate uh, jackets and ties for men, uh, and so – you know, I don't understand how you can't mandate a mask. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we're not going to have mask mandates for members on the floor. So let's answer that one directly. Um, I mask up all the time. I mask up everywhere I am. I've never not masked up on the floor. Uh, I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, there's not the support to have that level of a mask mandate. There's just not inside the caucus. Um, do I think if anybody's listening, by the way, do I think you should wear a mask all the time? Yes. Do I wear a mask all the time? Yes. Uh, you were talking about that, the joke about me being a Batman villain. I don't. I don't wear gloves anymore because we found out those aren't helpful. Right. Um, so, so, but we didn't know back then. Uh, but there's not going to be mask mandates on there. I mean, that's, that's not going to happen. So we had one of two options at that point. Uh, we could decide to say, all right, we're not going to have mask mandates. We're going to very much encourage it. There's probably about two thirds of my caucus that continues to wear masks. Um, if you looked at what was going on during swearing, it's about two thirds. There's about one third that doesn't. And at the end of the day, their their constituents are going to vote whether or not they think that's a good idea or not. I mean, that's. That's up to them. They're elected at that point. But we're setting up a ton of other protocols to make sure things are done as safely as possible. Hey, I'm an Oklahoma City guy. We bring 101 people in the city of Oklahoma City from all over the state. We're setting up as many protocols as we can to make that as safe as we can. And then I think there's a lot of us that are trying to mimic good behavior. And I'm one of those. We're not going to have it just because we're not going to have a mask mandate. And Again, if you're listening to this, I think you should wear a mask. Um, and, I, and I do it all the time. So. Mom. <laughs> so the lack of a mask mandate is not because it's not possible, but because there's just not the political support. Part. Oh, I think it's both. I mean, I think it. part of it is when we say it's not possible, I mean, how do you enforce that? I mean, you're going to have a... Well, how do you enforce a, anything? Right? Yeah, well, that, that's I've seen, I, I, I cannot yeah. help but point this out that back when my first stint at the Capitol in 2010, State Rep Randy Terrell, who used to dress like Jerry Seinfeld with like white tennis shoes and jeans, and that, he was being... Um, a puscatory in a in a meeting in 432A, and the chairman got annoyed and uh, told him that he had to leave and go get his coat and tie, and and could only return that way. So I've seen it happen. And, Ran and Randy left, right? And Randy left and have, got his tie have, and have, came back. Have you also seen the YouTube video of Mike Reynolds where the chairman gaveled him down on the House floor and said him removed, and they said sergeants, and about that time our 
sergeants were probably 78 years old and weren't going to go <laughs> going to go drag Mike Reynolds off the floor. I mean, it it it, it depends. I mean, you're you're you've got to pick and choose your battles on these issues. And I think it's a battle that doesn't, I'm listen, I support the speaker speakers call at the end of the day. Um, I think everybody should wear masks. I think they should do it all the time. I support the speaker's call and not having a mask mandate because I don't think that's a hill that, that is something that we're going to be able to fight and win on and, and fight and die on and win on. I think we can either spend all of our time, and again, I ask, answer more questions about mask mandates than I do anything sure. else. Sure, and, and I'm um, only asking you because we have to. Well, you and everybody else does. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, but, they have to. yeah but, but, but to be honest, limiting, if we're talking about the transmission of COVID, limiting the people to social distance requirements in committees will do way more to limit the, expre- the exposure of COVID than even a mask mandate would. Now, I'm not denying that wearing a mask, it then I think lowers the, I don't think, it just, it does. Wearing a mask lowers your chances of being exposed to per- COVID, period. I know there's, I'm going to just made a bunch of people mad. But it does. You're not my mom. <laughs> <laughs> You're proving her point. Yeah, and 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 it does. But at the end of the day, that's not something that's going to happen. But we can still have other things. Uh, we can still have other protocols. We're going to have a lot that allow us to vote safely, allow us to do our committee work safely, and we're going to need to move forward. And we still have to function as a government. Okay. We, uh, last, give me one sentence on each of these things. Data privacy, sports book, and redistricting. <laughs> uh, data privacy is good. Uh, sports book is uh, not going to happen this session. And redistricting for sure is going to happen this session. Okay. Uh, and you don't have the data yet from the census, the federal census, right? Not only do we not have the data yet from the federal census, the feds have told us it's going to come after our statutory deadline. So we're actually going to have to extend the statutory deadline in order to complete redistricting. But the work of redistricting has already happened. Go to www.okhouse.gov, look up the redistricting stuff and figure out where we're having public meetings near you. Okay, great. Uh, So we're running long, but uh, we want to make sure we honor our donors. And that comes to our favorite segment. Having Relations. go donor relations yay yay woot woot angela how do we look having relations is our public relations segment where we give a pod nod to our donors and our sponsors so i'm putting one minute i'm putting 60 seconds on the stopwatch and here i go so kaylee moore sandra harrison chad whitehead tracy zeke royce young deborah warren kirk martin jane abram joy alberts amy anderson Paul, I am so sorry. Arcoli? Arcoli. Arcoli, make it work. Okay. Alan Atkinson, Jennifer Babb, Cheryl Baber, Frank Baker, Greg Banta, Paige Bass, Kay Beach, and Martha. Say it for me. Say it. Say it. Read that word. Martha Bellevue. Good. Good job. Reading is hard. If I pronounced your name wrong, please subscribe, like, rate our podcast, and tell us in the review. (laughs) Give us a thumbs down. And I think Bryce actually knows how to say Paul's name. Arca Rolly. Arca Rolly. I like that. I like I that. I don't know. That's I mean, nice. the benefit is now he's been thanked like five times. Yeah. Paul, so you, you're, <laughs> you're mildly think, famous right now. I think he bought me a grape soda at Midway Deli, Midway Thompson, Bob Thompson down in Norman. Great place. Great sandwiches. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then I also went, oh, that's the timer. Oh, oh, your timer's there, over. There. Oh my gosh. Make it stop. Oh my gosh. Put it next to the microphone at least. Guys, guys, there it is. It's Turn a it real off. phone. I'm trying. I don't know how to work things. Okay, that was very stressful. She's our operations manager. Stop it. 
Um, <laughs> I also want to say thank you so much to our sponsors, PSO and AEP. They uh, came up with a slogan for us, which is non-biased, non-partisan, non-doc. You guys are an awesome sponsor and we really appreciate you. And then also the State Chamber of Oklahoma. What, what? You guys rock? If you'd like to be a donor, head to non-doc and click donate. Um, you can do one time or monthly donations, $5 or $1 million. We appreciate it all. And then if you work for a company that needs to or would like to sponsor local independent journalism, email me at Angela at nondoc.com. Okay, that's great. I think we're done. Do we have? Wait, guys, I've got one more question. Oh, uh, one thing I almost forgot. Okay, what uh, what do you have for us okay, this week, Angela? Okay, I'm going to hit you with this. So think of your dream person, your guy or gal of your dreams. Everything is like basically mostly perfect about them. Their few minor flaws are just like really endearing and sweet anyway. I do have to thank um, Josh McBee, our, a former non-docker for this uh, question, actually. <laughs> My so. girlfriend just texted me when you said that, but go ahead. Okay, yeah. she felt Woo! it. She's feeling the vibes. 222. Okay, so picture your girlfriend. Now, would you rather she has absolutely no toes or she has an excess of toes, like maybe 17 toes on each foot? All right. 17. You know, an I, excess. I don't <laughs> like, know. It's like one extra toe versus 17 extra toes. It's like a, diff- it's a different Yeah, question. no, an ex, like a disgusting amount of toes on each foot or no toes at all. I think I'd go no toes. Okay. You're going. You're going no, no toes. toes. Too many toes. Representative. I know you're thinking of your. your this wife. is a hot, hot I question. I am thinking of my amazing wife, my childhood sweetheart. How many toes does she I have? I would definitely have her an excess amount of toes. You can't oh. walk with I no know, toes. I know. Really? You're committing to dealing with balance issues <laughs> you, without toes. Oh no. You can't walk without your big toe. Imagine just no toes. But that imagine just like <laughs> extra pinky toes, just like lined like, up you, down the foot. If you have foot. seventeen toes, you also can't like. That might, that might be a hindrance also. Yeah. That's true. Trace, I, how many toes does your girlfriend have? She has 10. Okay. That's appropriate. <laughs> I th- I think they're, I'm, I like feet. Feet are fine. I don't know. People don't like feet. I don't know. But people I, are sort of in or out on feet. Yeah, I do like <laughs> It's to, a love like, or hate. I actually would have a hard time massaging a foot with no toes. That would be <laughs> odd. But yeah. I would have a weird, it would be odd to have a, to, you know, 20 Am toed. I the only one who's, yeah, grossed out by the, the like, <laughs> stacks of toes? The 20 to- <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining of more of, like, a circle of toes all around the I'm place. imagining, like, a club kicker, though. Yeah. I mean, that right. so really that's what I was going to go with. I'm going no toes because I Googled Tom Dempsey. We'll have to put what? a link into this man's Fact photo. Check it. For a long time, Tom Dempsey, field goal kicker, I believe for the Saints, uh, had the, he had the, the NFL record for the longest field goal, and he had a clubbed foot with which he kicked. And it, I, Wait, guess, I don't totally know what a what club is foot a, is. Yeah, a club foot is like a, you don't have toes. You have a you have a flat. Wait, what? Club foot means you don't have toes. It's. Or is it, well, I mean, we're now making. I don't. I'm not trying to make fun of a. Cl- look no, at the, I just look, no, know I'm that that's what a club fun. foot I just, is. Yeah, this is news to me. This is real life journalism right now. I'm trying to just, zoom in. We're yeah, doing the work for the people. The photo. I didn't know this oh was a thing. Gosh. Yeah. So that he's I got a special you, shoe. Right. You'd have to have a special shoe. So and I he think was you, an amazing kicker. I think you, he was an amazing kicker. So I think so if it's a I had to go with, I, yeah, I would think no toes. You'd have to learn to walk. But yeah, yeah. I, he I, obviously but, functioned. I mean, he made I'm it not, work. But you would still. I mean, this person's perfect. I'd still. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of like whatever situation you have on your feet. Like I'll make a concession. I try to be, try to be human. Yeah, as long as you're you're nice and sweet, like I'm down. Okay, well, okay, you guys, tell us what you think in 
the review section. Somebody with web feed is going to be real mad. Oh, but, well, that wasn't that's an a option. That's, that's a not completely even, different yeah. thing. I know, but that's they're going to think they're, they're going to feel added. They're going to feel, you know. We're not coming at you if that's your case. Okay. That would be fine, too. I think we love included. you Wait, did also you say as well what, as. Did you say what your preference is? Um, I'll just be single. <laughs> Okay. All right. <laughs> no. All right. There you go. Uh, that is the end of this episode. Representative, thank you so much for being our first guest. I think we're going to get a lot of people who want to just hear you talk about the legislature for an hour because that's what they get paid to know about. So that was our secret plan here. Andrea, thank you. Angela, thank you. You're welcome. If you're still listening somehow, like us, review us, rate us, sponsor us, uh, send us a nasty note, you know, Email via snail me. mail. Yeah. Uh, and otherwise... Count your blessings and your toes. Yes. <laughs> hey, Trey Savage here. One final note on this episode. We ended with our fun question at the end, which Angela came up with that uh, really interesting proposition. I was referring to former NFL place kicker Tom Dempsey, and I had always heard that he had a club foot. And uh, quickly after we finished recording, we realized that is not what his situation was. He was actually born without fingers or toes on the right side of his body. Uh, Clubfoot uh, from mayoclinic.org describes a range of foot abnormalities, usually present at birth, in which a baby's foot is twisted out of shape or position. Sometimes it can happen in both feet. Uh, and obviously they encourage quick treatment for that. So just wanted to clarify that. Didn't want to be insensitive or anything uh, by not understanding what that medical condition was. Uh, thanks for listening. You have been listening to Live from the News Dungeon, a nondoc.com production. Edited and recorded by Bryce Holland.